Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter, his first letter to his spiritual son Timothy, 1 Timothy, verses 2 to, one, to 7, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Again, our scripture reading is 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. And then our sermon passage today is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 24 to 52. So we left off last week at verse 23, and we're picking up again in what is a pretty long chapter. 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 to 52. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God is about to be read to you. This is God speaking. This is God talking to you. Please, listen. Listen to His voice. Don't listen for it. Listen to it, because the Lord speaks authoritatively to His people when His Word is read and when His Word is preached. 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now turning, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 to 52. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. 
And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and, and, know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malchishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul, Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for all of your word. And we thank you for the portion of it that we have heard read today. We pray that it would dig deep into our minds, that it would reach deeply and set itself firmly in our minds, that it would continue that work of transforming our minds that you began on that day when we were first regenerated, when we were first brought to faith in Christ Jesus. We pray, dear Lord, for the preaching of your word. We pray that you would help the one who preaches to give the sense of your word to give its meaning to help us to have understanding we pray for the ones who hear that you would give them ears to hear 
that you would give us all ears to hear, that you would help us, Lord, to sit in submission to your word. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us now. We ask this all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, after what happened in the second half of chapter 13 with Saul offering an unlawful sacrifice and Samuel telling Saul that he was going to make someone else king, Jonathan's victory over the Philistine garrison in chapter 14 was a much-needed win. But Jonathan's victory there at the end of chapter, uh, uh, in the beginning of chapter 14, it seems to drive his father Saul into somewhat of a frenzy in his desire to capitalize on the Philistines' loss and to make that loss even more severe. In order to do so, in order to pursue the enemy even further, even more quickly, he threatened the Israelite army with an oath, saying in verse 24 of our passage, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, good military commanders know that their troops in the field need to eat. Research for U.S. service members has shown that they typically burn about 4,200 calories a day during combat. And so as a result, the U.S. provides a huge amount of food to keep troops fit during battle. Those meals ready to eat, each one of them contains 1,200 calories. And soldiers in the field will eat three of those in a day if they don't have a a, a field kitchen out uh, providing hot meals for them. In addition to to, to maintaining troop strength, in addition to to making sure that the soldiers have the strength that they need to fight the battles, it also keeps morale high when when your fighters, when your troops are well fed. And Saul, as this and later accounts will show, seems to be more of a, the beatings will continue until morale improves persuasion. He thinks that the the harsh stick approach is going to be what causes his soldiers to win the victory against the Philistines rather than the sweet taste of a carrot. Even when it comes to light that his son unwittingly violated Saul's command, he still intends to carry through with it and execute Jonathan, his son. The people, however, the troops, would not hear of it. They would not permit Saul to kill Jonathan. Our passage says that the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now thinking about it in our case, in your case, in my case, it is we, God's people, who needed to be ransomed. We are in no shape to ransom anyone, especially not ourselves. And so that leads us to the thought that I want you to consider as we make our way through the sermon today. The son of the king came to give his life as a ransom for his people so that we would not die as punishment for our sins. The son of the king came to give his life as a ransom for his people so that we would not die as punishment for our sins. I perhaps had a little too much fun coming up with the section headers for this sermon today. It's very alliterative. Uh, The first point is Saul swears stupidly. The second point of the sermon is stubborn salvation. And the third point is a survey of Saul's service. So again, the first point of the sermon, Saul swears stupidly. 
The second point, a stubborn salvation. And the third point, a survey of Saul's servants. So let's look now at the first point, Saul swears stupidly. On the one hand, it's hard to blame Saul for wanting to strike swiftly against the Philistines while his side has the upper hand. Strike while the iron is hot. That's the adage. It probably dates back to Saul's day. Who knows? As we saw in last week's passage, the Philistines had been thrown into complete confusion and chaos following Jonathan's and his armor bearers' raid on their garrison. And so it makes sense that Saul would want to press his advantage here. However, the way that he goes about it leaves a great deal to be desired. Now, we've already quoted and discussed the oath that Saul makes in verse 24. But one further item to note is how personally Saul is now taking the situation with the Philistines. He orders his men not to eat anything so that he can be avenged. He wants Israel to defeat his enemies. And we saw this when Saul took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice to God instead of waiting just a little longer for Samuel to arrive. Saul accrued to himself authority and power that belonged to another. As one author puts it regarding verse 24 in our passage, he thought the Philistines, he thought of the Philistines not as the Lord's enemies, but as his own enemies. Here Saul already began to usurp the Lord's place. Just as he stole authority that rightly was Samuel's, just as he stole valor that belonged to Jonathan by taking credit for Jonathan's first victory against the Philistines, now he is trying to steal the honor that rightly belongs to the Lord. I think this is a problem that is common to all kings and rulers. Saul didn't recognize the limits to his own power and authority. He thought that they were uh, limitless. Saul believed that an attack against Israel was first and foremost an attack against him. He took it very personally. His sense of honor was offended by the things that the Philistines had done to him. But the reality was that it was in the first instance an attack against the God of Israel. Not against Israel's king. And this, along with Saul's ill-advised oath uh, in our passage... It betrays an emerging madness that will eventually consume him. Now he's made this oath and then the next part of the narrative tells us about these soldiers who came to a forest in which there was honey on the ground. There was honey dripping from honeycombs and trees. And by this time they were famished. And they had a hard battle ahead of them. Now Jonathan, being unaware of his father's command not to eat, he understandably, he took some of the honey. He had it to eat. And verse 27 says that when Jonathan tasted the honey, his eyes became bright. The honey restored his strength. When one of the soldiers, the other soldiers, saw that he had eaten the honey, he told Jonathan about his father's command and its accompanying curse. And verse 28 says that the people were faint because of their hum hunger. And Jonathan tells them in verses 29 and 30, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the, Phil for now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They've had some limited successes. They've, they've defeated the Philistines in some skirmishes. But as far as the war goes, as far as the, the outright battle goes, they've got a long way to go. Jonathan understands that his father's curse upon anyone who dared to eat before they had completely defeated the Philistines was counterproductive. Saul was shooting himself 
and his men in the foot by starving his men. And so this distrust and and this discord between Jonathan and his father Saul, it grows. You remember at the beginning of chapter 14, Jonathan didn't want, he didn't tell his father about his plan to go and attack the Philistine garrison. He didn't let him know. Verse 31 says that they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon and the people were very faint. It's reiterating the fact that the people are weak, they're hungry, they're starving. Now Saul might have felt justified in issuing his command to his soldiers because of the outcome of the battle that day against the Philistines. But what happened after the battle brought his error to light. Verses 32 to 35 show the the desperation that the men had reached in their hunger. We read that they pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. The people could not wait for the meat of the animals that they had slaughtered to be prepared in the proper way. So they ended up breaking God's commandments against eating meat meat with the blood in it. As God set forth in Leviticus chapter 3 verse 17. Now for those of you who like your steaks rare, be glad that you live after the New Testament era when God's Old Testament food restrictions have been lifted. But at this point, they were very much under those food restrictions. They couldn't eat something uh, like a rare steak that we enjoy in our day. But for Saul's soldiers, they were committing a grave sin And Saul quickly put an end to their feasting once he heard about it. He had a stone set up as an altar. He ensured that the animals were properly slaughtered and the meat properly cooked for the men. You see, what Saul had done here is he had made an oath. And in so doing, he had created a law, a new law, that his men had to keep. He did did damage to their liberty by adding to the laws in God's word. And the end result was that he caused his men, to break God's command. That that is what happens every time we add to the laws of God. Every time we add something, every time we add a, a, a thou shalt not to the laws of God, we force ourselves or other people to break God's other commandments. We're not to do it. We're not to follow Saul's example here. That leads us to the second point in the sermon, stubborn salvation. After his men had long, at long last eaten, Saul once again wants to press the advantage Israel has gained against the Philistines. In verse 36, Saul says, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. Saul now, he sees, he realizes that his men having eaten, they're strengthened. They can keep on going. They can skip sleep and take advantage advantage of the nighttime to go after their enemies. And Saul's soldiers are agreeable, but the priest said to Saul, let us draw near to God here. So Saul inquired of God whether they should go in pursuit of the Philistines. And if God, he asked if God would give Israel victory, but God did not answer Saul. And Saul here took that lack of an answer to uh, to mean uh, that there was sin in the camp. He took it to mean that someone had committed a grave error, a grave enough error that God would not speak to them. He doesn't think for a moment about his own sin. He thinks it's someone else. And so he says in verse 39, For as Yahweh lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. He challenges the people to fess up. 
But we read there that no one would answer Saul. The men who knew what Jonathan did, they don't want to give him up. And Jonathan clearly thinks that his, uh, his violation of this command that his father had give, given, this, this oath that his father had rashly taken, is not serious enough to want him to voice his uh, actions also. Then Saul divided up everyone gathered there. He had all of the soldiers on one side and he put Saul and he put himself and Jonathan on the other side. And then he used the means of the Urim and the Thummim to uh, determine where the guilt lay. Now, it's difficult to understand exactly what the Urim and the Thummim are. This passage actually contains the longest description of how they were used anywhere in the Old Testament. But, but the least that we can say is that the Urim and the Thummim, they were sacred stones that were carried by the priest. And one commentator describes the action of casting these stones, these two stones, as, as similar to flipping two coins simultaneously. Uh, with the participant uh, calling out heads or tails while they're in midair. You notice that the questions that Saul asks, they're essentially yes or no questions. Saul says in verse 41, If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. So apparently on each of these uh, stones, one of each of the sides of these two stones, there was Urim, and on the other there was Thummim. And if they both matched up, if they both said Urim, then Saul would know that the guilt was in Jonathan or in, his son, uh, in him. If they both said Thummim, then Saul would know that it was in the people, Israel. And both of these stones, when cast, landed with Urim facing up. Then Saul commanded the lots to be cast between himself and Jonathan. And the lots fell on Jonathan. And verse 43 says, Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul agrees that Jonathan, his firstborn son, must die. But the people don't think so. The people intervene in verse 45. They refuse to allow anything to happen to Jonathan. Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. The people understand that Jonathan was not guilty of sin. Whether Saul was conscious of it or not, he was about to send Jonathan to his death for Saul's own sin. The people continue in verse 45. As Yahweh lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And verse 45 ends with, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Now this word in verse 45 that's translated ransomed, it can also be translated redeemed in both uh, in, in the Hebrew. And so you'll find it in the Old Testament in various places, translated in some ways redeemed, other ways ransomed, depending on the context. Both of these words in English have a financial aspect to them. And that's the case for the Hebrew word that's behind these English words, ransomed and redeemed. People redeem coupons all the time. That's what you do when you use a coupon, if you use a coupon. In a hostage situation, sometimes a payment of a ransom is demanded. Now, in verse 45, it isn't clear whether the people actually paid some sort of financial ransom to redeem Jonathan from Saul's wrath, or if in their defiance of Saul's declaration that Jonathan must die, if, if that defiance itself was the ransom. 
One commentator writes, in verse 45 we find a solution to the problem of circumventing the irrevocability of the oath. Perhaps an, an animal was slaughtered as a substitute for the prince. Or the ransom may simply have been the people's implicit insinuation of themselves into Jonathan's place. Almost as if they had said to Saul, you'll have to go through us to get to Jonathan. If you think you're going to take him out, you've got to take all 600 plus of us out in order to do it. Jonathan did nothing wrong. And the end result was that Jonathan did not die. The people intervened for the king's son, and the king's son lived. This brings us to the final point in our sermon today, a survey of Saul's servants. Saul gave up on pursuing the Philistines that night, as verse 46 tells us. And the remainder of chapter 14, verses 47 to 52, it gives a survey of Saul's service as Israel's king. And you may see it as you read it. This is remarkably rosy, especially considering the events that took place immediately prior to these verses. Verses 47 and 48 and verse 52, they describe Saul's military prowess. When Saul had taken kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. And then the author lists out the enemies that Saul defeated. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, the Philistines, the Amalekites. And in verse 52, we read there, There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now these verses stand in stark contrast to the verses describing Saul as flying into a frenzy. They stand in stark contrast to those verses that show him fearfully hiding in a cave. Or those that show Saul impatiently taking matters into his own hands instead of waiting for Samuel. And even the in-between verses of this last section of chapter 14, verses 49 to 51, in which the members of Saul's family are listed out, these serve to domesticate the man who will increasingly show himself to be unstable as 1 Samuel continues on. Why is this a sort of epilogue placed here at the end of chapter 14, especially since the narrative about Saul continues on until his death at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31? After this, and more especially after the Lord rejects Saul a second time in chapter 15, the focus will increasingly be on the Lord's second anointed king of Israel, David. And as that focus shifts to David, Saul becomes increasingly, increasingly more unstable. His madness grows. And while things with Saul aren't great at the end of chapter 14, they're not as nearly as bad as they're going to get later on. Now some people, uh, always this is the case, some people have said that these last few verses, they were added, to, added by an editor of 1 Samuel later on. They're not original to the text. Somebody came in and just put them in there. Uh, someone who didn't share Samuel's view, the, the, the very negative view of Saul that Samuel or the original author had of this book. But as one commentator observes, chapter 14 verses 47 to 52 serve as part of a frame to the picture of Saul's life. The other part of the frame being chapter 13, verse 1. But why put the second part of the frame here at the end of chapter 14 and not at the end of chapter 31 following Saul's death? I'm going to go out, out on a limb here. I'm going to speculate just a little bit. I don't think it's harmful speculation. I 
could be wrong. If it is, I'm sure uh, you'll let me know. But I think that the author of 1 Samuel, the divine author as well as the human author, is making a theological point by placing this second part of the frame at the end of chapter 14. There's a reason why this section, this survey of Saul's service as king, why it follows Jonathan's redemption by Saul's soldiers. The people understood that God had used Jonathan to bring about the salvation of God's people, and they intervened. They interposed themselves to prevent Saul from killing his son. And as a result, Jonathan did not die. As a result, Israel had many more successes, and these successes were attributed to Saul since he was king. God loved his people. God had favor on his people. And because of that, we might say, he had favor on Saul, despite Saul's many flaws. Because the people interposed to save Jonathan, Saul spared his son's life, which benefited Saul greatly. Saul didn't add to his guilt further by killing his own son because of his, Saul's, sin of making a terrible oath. And Saul gets, so Saul gets a lot of credit, or perhaps credit may be due elsewhere. He's counted in God's word as, as a better person than perhaps many would uh, recall him being in his own life. Now, in our case, it's the exact opposite. We, the people of God, are guilty of heinous sins and are therefore deserving of death. The king, God, rightly condemns us for our sin. But then the king intervenes. He sends his own guiltless son to put himself in our place. The prince, Jesus Christ, became sin. He became your sin, and he became my sin by taking our sins upon himself. And he died the death that we deserve to die. He interposed himself between us and the righteous wrath of his father. And he endured his father's wrath on the cross. The way that Saul's life is framed at the end of chapter 14, it looks like he lived a righteous life. But we know the full story. We know the rest of the story. We know the exploits of Saul. We know the things that he, the terrible things that he did. But I think here God is giving us his version of Saul's story, the redeemed standard version, we might call it. And that's the same version our story is in, if we believe in Jesus Christ. We and others close to us know all too well that the stories of our lives are pretty ugly. They're marred with sins and disobedience. But in God's version, the authoritative version, it's perfect. No, you've got to admit it, I think. At least I do. When I'm reading this, this, this book in the Bible, when I read about Jonathan, Jonathan is one of the few characters in 1 Samuel, maybe apart from Samuel himself, who, who really... Rarely, if ever, is there any mention of Jonathan's sinning. Of course, he was a sinner. But Jonathan is a hero. And when we read this passage, when we read the book of 1 Samuel, admit it. Okay, maybe, maybe you don't, but I'll admit it for myself. I put myself in Jonathan's place. I'm Jonathan. I want to be the hero. I think of myself as the guy who gets out and gets it done and does it right. But the reality is that we are a lot more like Saul, as much as we don't want to admit it. 
we're a lot more like Saul. And if Saul somehow can get this perfected version of his story put in Scripture, if his sins and his madness and, and, and the terrible things that he does can be redeemed, the brothers and sisters, so can yours and my terrible things be redeemed. God's version is how he sees us and it is authoritative. He looks at us through the corrective lens of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is counted as our own perfect righteousness by faith. That's how he sees you and me if you and I believe in Christ Jesus. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are reckoned by the Father as having lived a sinless life. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That is the gospel. And that gives us hope. As those who continue to struggle with sin in a fallen world, your Father in heaven sees you as righteous, as obedient, as perfect in His sight because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank You that we too have been redeemed. We thank You that when no one else on the face of the earth could interpose to save us, that Christ Jesus, your only begotten Son, the Prince of Heaven, that He did. That He came. That He stood between us and your righteous, perfect wrath. That He took it all. He endured it on the cross. We're thankful, dear Lord, that though we have done nothing, though we will never do anything, contribute to our salvation that you regard us as having done it all because in your perfect economy you are able to reckon the righteousness of Jesus Christ as our own we thank you that by faith we have been washed clean we thank you that you have caused us to be born again to a new and living hope we thank you, O oh Lord, that we are no longer bound to walk in sins and transgression and trespasses. We are no longer under the power of sin and death. We thank you, O oh Lord, that we have been set free if we have faith in Christ Jesus. Please, O oh Lord, teach us to be grateful. And help us to bear the fruit of faith. We thank you for what you, O triune God, have done to ensure that we will live with you forever. And we thank you that already we live with you. We pray this all in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.